And thank you, Van and Susan, for arranging that and organizing our chili cook-off. That was great. We all ate well. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 will show verses on the screen as well. But, but open up to a Bible if you have one or your Bible app so you can follow along more closely. Today we are finishing our little series we've been calling Political Christians. We've been using 1 Peter chapter 2 as a, a lens, a lens through which to see a very important intersection, the intersection of government and politics with discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we do that with the hope that you might turn to this chapter, among others, when you encounter that very important intersection. That's what expository preaching does. That's the kind of preaching we focus on here. Expository preaching takes the point of the passage and makes sure that's the point of the sermon, such that you get a, a handle on that passage. And though we may not remember, I won't remember much of what I say, we remember that passage. And we can grasp that passage and keep on applying that passage to our lives. So I pray that happens for us from this series. Also, as a reminder, to additionally help you, a class begins after the service called Rethinking Church and Politics. The reason is we wanted to provide a context where you can go into more detail, ask any question, interact further, and additionally, have an opportunity to discuss things like politics within our love and unity in Jesus, which I think is a very healthy thing for us. We can have political discussions and political differences even within our broader unity in Christ. And so check that out. It begins in the conference room. Thank you, Dan Arthur, for leading that and teaching that. Let me pray briefly, and then Mindy's going to read our passage. Holy Spirit, would you, would you grant us the gift of illumination as we seek to discern your will, where we encounter government, where we encounter politics, and even in this passage, where we encounter suffering and hardship, that you would equip us with a theology for suffering that we may be able to endure. So grant that. Help us, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is from 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, you, when you, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mindy. How does that passage relate to politics and government? It doesn't. Not directly, at least. But indirectly, it can. Indirectly, by way of application, it certainly can. Peter is here, as you saw, talking to servants about submitting to masters, especially unjust ones. He tells servants why they should endure suffering that is unjust in particular. Why they should persevere when they are mistreated. And that lesson for relating to economic authority is one we're going to need for governmental authority and just relating to the culture in general. What this passage teaches about unjust economic authority can be applied to governmental authority and simply the resistance we might encounter in the culture at large. Let me give you a couple examples. With our government's official position on same-sex marriage and transgender issues, governmental authority is on a collision course in ways with biblical Christianity. Now, we should greatly love those who are ensnared in homosexual practices. And we should greatly love those who are confused about their gender. Let us be a refuge for them. Let them find hope and help in Christ as we need ourselves. But when the government's official position so clearly conflicts with the Bible, you can see how religious liberty may very well be cast into a, a different mold. Not going away, but reshaped in ways. For instance, during his presidential run, Beto O'Rourke stated the logical conclusion. He said that if elected, he would revoke the tax-exempt status of religious institutions like churches if, if they oppose same-sex marriage. So for your biblical fidelity, you lose a tax exemption. Now that's not grave suffering. It's not. But it would hurt many churches financially. And I doubt, personally, he'll be the last politician to suggest this. It's just reflecting the cultural tide, the tide of the culture and where it's headed. Here's another example of the cultural tide in particular. You might have seen that Chick-fil-A recently closed their first store in the UK days after opening it. The reason? The backlash over their support for, quote, controversial Christian charities like the Salvation Army and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. How controversial, you ask? Because of their biblical position on homosexual practice. And so Chick-fil-A no longer supports either organization. That's the cultural tide. That's where the culture is going. And so where representative government will go to the degree God allows. Again, that may not mean suffering per se. 
but it will mean difficulty at times, perhaps. It may mean some degree of rejection or intolerance or even maybe some outright hostility. So my question for us as we come to this passage is, how should we relate to government and the culture more broadly when we suffer for Jesus' sake? How should we relate to the government and, and culture at large when we're resisted or, or mistreated to no fault of our own? God answers that question here. He provides what we need, friends, a theology of suffering. And he does so in particular by providing two purposes, two purposes to help you persevere through suffering. That's what I want to see with you. Two purposes that can be applied to any suffering to help you persevere. Here's purpose number one, to experience God's grace. Purpose number one, you experience something here of God's grace. Look at verse 18 with me, please. Verse 18, servants, be subject. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust, the cruel, the, the crooked. And these servants here are, are really slaves in the Roman Empire of which there were millions. Now, slavery in this day was not the brutal, dehumanizing, chattel form of slavery practiced in this country. This was more like indentured servanthood. Many could earn their freedom. Some lived fairly well, but there were, of course, abuses also. So those servants would have wondered, if my master is cruel, if my master is unjust, should I be subject to them then? And God says, yes. Now, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, gain your freedom if you can. But here he says yes, and verse 19 tells us why. He begins to provide a theology of suffering for why. Verse 19, for, or here's the reason, for this is a gracious thing. When, when mindful of God, when, when conscious of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, that word sorrows is, is, is pain, basically, but not physical pain. This is more like mental anguish, emotional grief. It's that kind of pain. It's the grief, it's the anguish we experience ourselves when maybe a family member slanders you for your faith in Christ. Or when the neighbors shun you after you bring over that Christmas invitation for church. Or when classmates tease you or, or avoid you because you don't do the things they do because you want to glorify God. Or when that coworker is trying to rattle your cage at work to see if they can get you to sin outwardly as a, as a Christian. Friends, when you endure sorrows like that but persevere, mindful of God, verse 19 says that's a gracious thing or literally, it's a grace. A, a grace is yours in those times. Grace, like he explains further in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For further explanation, for what, what credit is it if, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's no credit for you, he says, if you deserve that suffering. But if it's undeserved suffering, if it's a form of what you might call innocent suffering, then some credit is yours, some grace. It's the grace he mentions further in chapter 3, verse 9. Look at chapter 3, verse 9, just to pull this theme a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, bless that person. Why? For to this you were called that you may obtain, notice, a blessing. Don't revile back, bless them. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. Reminded me of William Cooper's hymn that we'll sing at the end of our service, when God moves in a mysterious way. It goes like this in one stanza. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, the clouds of bitter providence you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Some kind of blessing, a grace is held out. Especially, I think, the kind in chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God meeting you in some way with his presence and power, the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. Now, friends, apply this to any form of suffering, okay? Not just masters and servants, not just economic suffering. Apply this to any sorrow as you follow the Savior. Apply this to any pain on the pathway of discipleship. And some grace here is promised to sustain you. Jeff and Jane Richards, let me share this. They recently posted on their Caring Bridge site a reflection on the past year of battling brain cancer. They wrote, as we thought about why we both felt that we would not change anything this last year brought. Now, did you catch that? Why we both felt we would not change anything this last year brought, we came to these conclusions. Here's the first one, quote, there is an intimacy with God. You can only learn by going through trials and suffering. It is by design, His design. Looking back at how much closer we are to our Lord, and learning to rely on Him, we are both unwilling to make the trade. And they say this, if this is the price of intimacy with Him, then so be it. That sounds a lot like what we're seeing in 1 Peter 2. If this is the price of intimacy with God, if this is the price of that grace, that blessing, the spirit of glory and of God resting upon us, then so be it. 
That's the first purpose God holds out to us here, an experience of his grace sustaining us, that we persevere. But then God, God shows us why that endurance is such a gracious thing with purpose number two, and I really want to drop into purpose number two, to imitate God's Son. It's the second purpose that sustains you, to imitate God's Son. Look now at verse 21, please. Verse 21 begins again, for, so explanations continuing, another purpose, for, to this you have been called, to this you have been summoned, to this you have been commissioned, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, that word example, that word example, that was used when children were learning their letters of the alphabet, and they would trace over an example of a letter. That's how they would learn their letters to write their letters. They would keep tracing over and over that example of that given letter in the alphabet. This verse is saying, that's what you do with your life. You keep tracing over the example of the suffering Savior. Notice the letters we are to trace. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was charged with blasphemy, do you recall? How dare you claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, when that's precisely who he is and was. And yet in response, he committed no sin. He did not deceive in any way. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he was spit upon and mocked, do you recall? Oh, he thinks he's a king. Let's put a robe around him. Let's twist into his scalp a crown of thorns. Let's beat him with a staff. When he was reviled like that, he didn't revile back. He didn't even threaten. He said at one point, I could call upon legions, thousands of angels. But he didn't. This is Isaiah 53, echoed into 1 Peter 2, the suffering servant of God. And that's what we trace with our lives. As verse 21 put it, to this you have been called. To this you've been summoned to trace that example, to follow in his steps. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the Christian life according to Jesus. That's take up your instrument of execution. Take up your electric chair and die to yourself that you might find life in living for him. That's our calling. That's our summons. This is a theology of suffering we need, brothers and sisters. It's a summons to be what Martin Luther called a theologian of the cross instead of a theologian of glory. Luther said, the reformer said, theologians of glory, they understand God as they want him to be and do for them. 
Bless me now in the ways I define, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity right now. Maybe a little fame also. That'd be nice. But the theologian of the cross, he said, understands God through the lens of Jesus' suffering. They understand that to follow a suffering Savior will mean suffering in this life and glory to come. Peter, our inspired author, he was a theologian of glory at one time. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? The most important question each of us must answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A, A mountaintop experience of divine illumination. Jesus said, that is right. The Father has made this known to you. And then he began to tell the disciples what kind of Christ, what kind of Messiah he's come to be. Do you recall? He said, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected by the religious establishment. I must be killed. And after three days, I will rise. And Peter heard this, bless his heart, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, began to correct him. Jesus, messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs win. Messiahs rule. Think glory, Jesus. And Jesus, of course, said, get behind me, Satan. In other words, this is satanic thinking. You are setting your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. But that theologian of glory, he was converted to a theologian of the cross, wasn't he? I mean, just ask yourself here, which way do I lean? What's my default? You know? What's the understanding I live with? Glory now? My best life now, health, wealth, prosperity now. So when a trial comes, you're like, whoa, that's not expected. Or a theologian of the cross who says, yeah, I, I knew it wouldn't be easy, but there's glory to come. The Christian life, friends, is this calling, this summons to a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. That's why we serve. That's why we gladly give our lives away to others in service and ministry. That's why we serve on ministry teams. It's why we use our spiritual gifts in service in the local church. It's why we seek to meet needs, needs in our home groups because it's a, it's a cruciform life, a cross-shaped Life. So let's make some application to that intersection of government and politics. Vincent Baycoat, in his book that I would recommend, The Political Disciple, he says this cruciform path, this cruciform life in relation to government makes us two things, courageous and realistic. Courageous and realistic. Let's just think about both. Recently, Sung and I saw the movie A Hidden Life. It's based on the true story of an Austrian farmer named Franz Jägerstatter who refused to swear loyalty to Adolf Hitler. Everyone else around him said, 
Be loyal to your fatherland. What's wrong with you? But Franz would not do so because of his Christian convictions and how he saw that Hitler was evil. At one point in the movie, they show Franz looking at Christ on the cross, a statue of Christ on the cross, along the pathway he was walking. And then he continues down that road as if to say symbolically he's choosing the cruciform, cross-shaped life that would lead to his execution. That's courage on the cross-shaped path. And I'm not saying our situation is the same as Nazi Germany. I'm not saying that. But friends, courage will still be needed. We must have courage to keep sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, like they do in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the religious kind of quasi-governmental authorities tell Peter and John, stop preaching Jesus, to which they reply, you decide if we should obey you rather than God. Okay, you think about that. We've already decided. We're going to keep on preaching Jesus. But not just the apostles, mind you. The whole church in Acts 4, or the church represented rather, in Acts 4 gathers, and that in that prayer meeting, these church members pray, Lord, look upon their threats. They're threatening us. Lord, look upon their threats. And I, mean, I would pray, help them to stop threatening. Grant us protection, which of course is appropriate. But they say, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Friends, we must do the same. Not hunkering down. Not withdrawing. We keep preaching Jesus. Even if the government ever says we have to stop, which they're not. We keep preaching Jesus when the culture says we're too controversial, which they are saying that. We keep declaring the message of life to a lost and dying world because we're following in his steps. It's the courage as well. Let's just push the application. It's the courage as well to be what I would call a prophetic witness to the government and a prophetic witness to the political sphere, and a prophetic witness to the culture at large, a prophetic witness like John the Baptist, you recall, calling out the public scandalous sin of King Herod, for which John was then arrested and eventually led to his execution. The cruciform life, this cross-shaped life, enables us to be that kind of prophetic witness at this intersection willing to call out politicians on both sides of the aisle, willing to be out of step with both political parties. Are you willing to do that? I know you're doing these things already, many of you, writing protests, uh, or rather protesting wrong policies and laws, writing letters to politicians, voting based on your conscience. And you're doing this courageously as a prophetic witness when you serve and give toward organizations like CAPS, College Area Pregnancy Services. That is a prophetic witness on an important issue that is highly politicized. You are saying, as we support that 
Pregnancy Center, we are saying we want to serve mothers and their unborn children. We want to serve both. We care about both mothers and their unborn children, regardless of the politics around us. The cruciform life, friends, should make us courageous, but also realistic, also realistic. Realistic, knowing there's going to be pushback for you following Christ. Realistic so that when you're opposed or mistreated, you're not surprised, as Peter says in chapter 4. Not surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Not surprised if church tax exemptions go away. You're going to keep on investing in the ministry of the gospel regardless. Not surprised if the culture says, or a co-worker says, or a classmate says, you're on the wrong side of history. You're not surprised by that. You're going to keep following in its steps. This kind of realism produces Christians who persevere. And I think it's realism as well about the limits of political power. Because we know, friends, don't we know that the problems in our world are far more profound than any political candidate or party can truly solve. Don't we know that? But can't we fixate, fixate on who's controlling the political levers of power? Can't we fixate on that? as if that were our greatest hope. Brett McCracken, in a review for the movie I mentioned, he puts this well. He writes, our evangelical longing for political power, not wrong to have political power, but our evangelical longing, craving for political power, he says, may not rest comfortably with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's statement, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Should we be politically engaged? Yes. Should we work for the common good? Yes. But if there's a longing, a longing, we've got to have power that may not rest comfortably with come and die. Do you see our calling here? Do you see how relevant necessary it is to have a theology of suffering. A commission here, a summons to follow one who committed no sin when sinned against, who did not revile when reviled himself, who did not threaten when experiencing the greatest injustice possible, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Instead, notice what he did do back in verse 23. Notice what he did do. The verse continues. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the, the himself is added in our English Bibles. It's, it's a right inference. Jesus certainly entrusted himself, but he entrusted the whole situation to God. The reviling, the mocking, the beating, the shame, all of it, he entrusted to God and his ultimate justice. So we don't just imitate Jesus' suffering. We must imitate his trust, don't we? 
knowing that our God will right every wrong, expose every lie, bring justice to every injustice in this world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that justice will one day fully and finally be done? Do you believe that? You need to. Because then you can entrust it all to him when injustice hits you. So where is that for you, friends? It could be with that family member slandering you for your faith in Christ. It could be those neighbors who shun you for being a Christian. It could be the classmates who tease you or, or avoid you. It could be the coworker trying to rattle your cage. Look, it could be any sorrow. The point at which you need to trust God this morning could be any sorrow in following the Savior, any, any pain, any pain on the pathway of discipleship. Where is it for you? Right there, God is saying, persevere by knowing these purposes. Persevere, endure, keep going by knowing these two purposes. Believe that you'll experience God's grace, the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. Intimacy with God, like Jeff and Jane talked about. And secondly, believe in that you are called to this. You are summoned to follow in his steps the one who did not sin back, the one who did not revile back, the one who did not threaten back. Believe that, friends, and you will keep going. But let's be honest, this is not easy. It's not easy at all. We want to sin when sinned against. I do. We want to revile back when reviled ourselves. We want to threaten or lash out or get even. So we don't just need an example to trace. We need a rescue. We don't just need steps to follow, though we have them. We need the Savior to also deliver us. And that's what he has done. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. He, he himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus didn't just suffer physically. That wasn't the worst of it, not by a long shot. He suffered spiritually in our place. His suffering was far more than an example. It was an example, but even more than that, he suffered the justice of God against our sins as our substitute bearing the wrath of God for the ways we revile, for the ways we sin, for our bitterness and the ways we want to threaten back that we might, as the text says, die to sin and live to righteousness, dying to bitterness, dying to that craving for vengeance, dying to that desire to lash out and set free to love and serve and represent Jesus no matter what the culture says. For as sweet, sweet verse 25 puts it, you were straight but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Keep going, brothers and sisters. Persevere, come what may, because he is shepherding 
and overseeing your soul. And to help us embrace that and live in light of that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper at this time. Those serving us, please prepare to do so. And the music team, come.